if you would tonight turn for an introduction to the book of 2 Kings back to 1 Kings chapter 21. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 29. I thought it was important, as one commentator writes, when you get to 2 Kings and you begin a study there, you're beginning in the middle. Uh, in fact, the book of Kings was originally one book when, it was, when the Bible was translated, or the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek, it seems to have been divided at that point. And later on in history, it became the books of 1 Kings and 2 Kings. So I'm really starting in the middle of a story. And yet at the same time, we need to understand the context. So as we turn there, I want you to ask yourself this question, or uh, give yourself this scenario, rather. Imagine the most despicable person that you know. Now, multiply that despicable factor by 10. Put that person as a ruler of your land, and imagine their spouse is even worse, inducing them to act on every wicked thought. That's the plight of the people of Israel when we open the introduction to the books of 2 Kings. You see, the conclusion of 1 Kings is the death of King Ahab. And this is the state of the country under Ahab and really a recognition that this is really, in essence, the state of the entire nation before God. So follow along, I'll read. 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 17 through 29. Elijah is the prophet in this section. Ahab and Jezebel are the king and queen. And you might be surprised at the story that takes place in this passage. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted, and lay in sackcloth, and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. 
as we consider this portion of God's word, let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, open our ears that we might hear, and our hearts that we might understand your word, and that by your spirit you might help us apply them to our lives. Lord, I pray that whatever is spoken here and thought here would be consistent with your word or else pass away and never be heard from again. For, Lord, your word shall stand forever, but other things shall fail. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 16th century Geneva, Switzerland, writing from his self-imposed exile, John Knox of Scotland wrote a book decrying the wicked queens of Scotland, England, and France. As you can imagine, he probably left no stone unturned in describing the nefarious affairs of these particular queens. After all, he had the scars and aches to prove it after more than one and a half years of pulling oars on galley ships. But the question would be, would he attempt to repair his royal relationships upon his return to his homeland? Well, actually, no. Not unless the queens were to repent from their sins. You see, he was known for standing up even to the rulers who might punish him. Loving the sinner does not mean ignoring the sins. In fact, in this passage, we find out that God hates sin. God also knows people, and God loves repentance. First of all, God hates sin. This is the situation in Israel. Here is Ahab. Ahab is now in the line of the house of Omri. If you know anything about the history of Israel in 1 Kings, you know that Jeroboam became the king after the division of north and south, that is, uh, Israel and Judah. Jeroboam be became the king, and after his grandson became king, then the people rose up against him, and that particular house was destroyed. First, by prophetic utterance, uh, the description, predictive prophecy, and then, of course, by the people who carried that out. And then it became a time of great insurrection. One king would come to office and he would be killed. Another king would come to office and he was killed as well. And finally, Omri became the king and Ahab is in this line. So here is Ahab. He's now the king of Israel. In the context of our passage, he has just taken by fraud and deceit the land or the vineyard of Naboth, his neighbor and had had Naboth killed unjustly. So he'd just been involved, particularly at the incitement of his wife Jezebel, Ahab after all, when he said, I want that vineyard, he just sulked in his bed because he didn't know how to get it. And his wife said, well, what are you doing? You're the king, aren't you? And so she had incited him, and he had, she had also sent false uh, witnesses to accuse Naboth of blasphemy, and so they had take them out, taken him out and stoned him, and then Ahab acquired that vineyard upon the death of Naboth. That's the context. This is what the king did. Imagine, this is not just some wicked person living in the cities around this, the nation of Israel. This is the king of the land and his wife. And so here, we understand God will go to great lengths to expose this sin. He tells Elijah, go down to meet 
King Ahab, who is in Samaria, that's the capital. He is in the vineyard of Naboth. In other words, he's enjoying his possession by ill-gotten gain. And it says, when you get there, you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? In other words, God is saying to Ahab through Elijah, here is your city. God has done that in the past. You know, by this point, we hear the story of David. You know, God did this with David. When David was told a story by the prophet, David got all upset about the instigator in the story, and yet Nathan said, you are the man. God will go to great lengths to expose sin. But it's interesting. In this case, he tells Elijah to specifically name the sin, to name it. Notice what he says. You have killed and you have taken possession. In other words, he's naming specific sin, in this case, fraud and murder. Remember, Elijah is told to go to the king. Kings have absolute power in this particular context. At least they, they claim that absolute power, although God, we know, has the power over them. And Elijah goes up to him and says, you are a sinner. Here are the two sins you've committed, fraud and murder. Not only that, but listen to what else he says. You shall say to him, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your blood. And then in verse 20 it says, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. You see, it's both specific sin and it's general sin. The idea is sold yourself to do evil. That means it's not just the fraud and the murder. It's his entire lifestyle that's taking place here. He's living in such a way that he's given himself over completely to this sin. And so what happens in that case? God is bringing judgment. He hates sin. There are consequences to sin. And notice these three consequences. The first is personal judgment. This is the very disgusting thing about the dogs licking up blood. You know, it's a reminder that he had murdered Naboth, and evidently in that murdering of Naboth, this was probably a literal thing. The dogs would lick up the dogs. are disgusting creatures in that sense. They licked up the blood. So in the very place where that takes place, you will find yourself in that same condition. In other words, you will die there, and the dogs will also lick up your blood. And of course, dogs in those days weren't man's best friend. They were considered uh, very dirty or unclean animals in most circumstances, and they were considered those who were kind of down and dirty, so to speak. And so this was basically lowering the king into a very low condition, even among the people. This was personal judgment. God will judge you for what you have done. But there's also general judgment here. Notice what else he says. He says here, I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. This disaster that God will bring upon him will affect the entire nation because Ahab is representative of the people. And it particularly will strike his family, as we shall see. But notice what it says, every male will be affected. 
That means everybody. There's general judgment here, and of course, because Ahab represents the nation in a sense as its leader, then the entire nation is being judged. But finally, not just personal judgment, general judgment, but also comparative judgment. He will judge them or make his house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, you know that Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, was the first king after the divided kingdom. There's David and Solomon, and then Solomon's son, Rehoboam. That's when the kingdom is divided. Rehoboam maintained the kingdom of Judah, and Jeroboam gained the kingdom of Israel. And if you know anything about Jeroboam, you know that in Jeroboam's life, he was considered a very... Uh, a very gifted individual. In fact, he was, uh, he was by God raised up to be an adversary to Solomon. He was a very capable and worthy person in that sense. And yet God, by his design, called Jeroboam to be a thorn not only in Solomon's side, but to rise up and rebel against Rehoboam. He gained the kingdom, and God told Jeroboam, as long as you follow me, I will lift up your house and establish it forever. And Jeroboam, in his own idea, rather than follow God, he set up two golden calves in two different places in Israel, and he told Israel, these are the gods that brought you up out of Egypt. And throughout the books of First and Second Kings, every single king in Israel, just about, is compared to Jeroboam. If they were those who followed idols or did wicked things, it says that they were like Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and Jeroboam led Israel into the sin of idolatry. And he says, your house will be like his house. His house, by this point, had been destroyed. All of the people of the house of Jeroboam, all the men were killed. So this is terrible judgment. He also said it will be like the house of Basha. You might not know that particular individual. Basha is the one who came and helped establish the prophecy by killing the house of Jeroboam just a few chapters earlier. In fact, it is true back in chapter 15 and 16, Jeroboam's son Nadab had become king. And when Nadab was king, then it says here, in chapter 15, verse 33, in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, the son of Ahijah, began to reign over all Israel at Terzah, and he reigned 24 years. Well, in order to get that, Baasha had struck down the son of Jeroboam, and he had killed all the house of Jeroboam. So in other words, this guy was the one who initiated the punishment that God placed upon the house of Jeroboam. But scripture also tells us this guy was no better than Jeroboam, and his house, too, was completely destroyed. And so what is God saying to Ahab? He's saying, I know your sin, both specifically and generally. You will be judged, and the consequences will be dire, even like the house of Jeroboam and the house of Baasha. Now, sometimes when we do things, we don't think that people are going to catch us. 
after all, I've been talking about our surveillance videos that were, or surveillance cameras that we're going to place in this church building. My wife says, I don't really like being surveilled. And she doesn't want to see, uh, to know that somebody is watching her all the time. And I have to say, many of us don't like that either. I remember as a boy, thinking of the times I wanted to get away with something. I think of two events in particular. One was this. I remember that my mother told me as I left the house when I was young that I needed to put a stocking hat on. It was cold outside. Of course, I didn't want to do that. And so what did I do? Being as smart as I was, I put the hat in the mailbox and went off to school. Now, of course, how silly. My mother found my hat in the mailbox. My sin was exposed. The other situation was this. My parents had told me one time, I don't remember how old I was. I think I was a rebellious teenager at that point. My parents were going to be gone for the evening, and the one thing they told me is, you are not to watch TV. Well, guess what happened? I watched TV. My parents were gone, and of course, when they're coming home, I, I don't remember the circumstances, but I know that television set that we had it didn't go off quietly. It was one of those that still would glow in the dark after you turned it off, and surely they knew that I had watched television. And I remember the punishment in that particular case. The punishment was this. My dad told me, I don't know if I can trust you anymore. Be sure your sin will find you out. Sin exposed is actually an opportunity for repentance and restoration. I can guarantee you it was a long time before I watched TV when my parents were gone again. And there was a time when it, it, over time they could begin to trust me again in those circumstances. But it's a reminder that God hates sin and will call us out. For after all, he knows us. He knows us intimately. In fact, here's what it says in verses 25 and 26. It's a little parenthetical section here of the text. It says, there was no one who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. God knows him, and he inspired the writer of these annals to tell us there was no one like him. Now, when we say that sometimes, sometimes we mean a good thing, don't we? There's no one like him. He's a wonderful guy, all that kind of stuff. But God's not saying that. He's saying there's no one like Ahab. No one who gave himself over or let himself be sold into evil like him. In other words, it's what the language we use today. He sold his soul to do evil. In fact, we might say by this point, he was the worst king of Israel. Terrible, terrible, wicked person. That person I asked you to imagine, the most despicable person you know, times ten, even probably worse than that. He was the worst king of Israel that they had seen to that point. And of course, it didn't help that he was seduced by Jezebel, his wife, Jezebel was someone who he had married from the peoples around them that were forbidden for the people of Israel to marry. 
She was an idolater, and she brought the idolatrous practices into the household. And rather than rejecting them, Ahab bought into them, sold himself to them, and worshipped those idols as voraciously as his wife Jezebel. And of course, the judgment upon Jezebel would be even worse. In fact, she had no burial at all. Situation we know when she was judged and she was thrown from a tower and later on they tried to find her body to bury it they could not find it evidently the dogs or animals had taken it apart this was a terrible god a guy but God knew that about Ahab and notice the description exceedingly abominable actions now we can think of terrible things that people have done. Ahab did some of these terrible things. Not just murder and fraud, but leading his people into all kinds of wicked things before God. Exceedingly abominable. Those words are not used lightly. And the heart of this was this. Remember, this is the people of God. These are the people that God has made a covenant with. He has promised that they would be his people forever. And Ahab is the leader of these people. He is called in his office not only to lead the people with righteousness and justice, he is called to read the word of God and write it every day of his kingship. And instead, what is he doing? Verse 26, he went after or walked after idols as the Amorites had done. The Amorites, of course, were the people in Canaan that they were supposed to drive out. We were reminded way back in Genesis 15 that the people of Israel would be called to that promised land when the iniquity of the Amorites was full in order to judge them for their idolatry and wickedness. And instead, here's King Ahab acting just like them. God knows. I don't know if you remember some of the news stories about some of the renowned killers murderers of our day, some of the most wicked people. How often do we read the parents say, he was such a good boy. Or we read from the neighbors, I had no idea. He was just a quiet man. He seemed like a nice guy. Or must someone else just say, I'm shocked. You see, sometimes we can't even the wickedness of someone else's hearts, or even know the terrible deeds that they have done. I guarantee you, if we knew some of the wicked and terrible things going on in our neighborhood, we would be shocked. We would be alarmed. We would want to run away and move away. But God knows our hearts. He knows that Ahab sold himself. He knows when people, anybody, anybody in our neighborhood, anybody in our community, even ourselves. He knows the state of our hearts because he knows people and he hates sin. If this was the end of the story, we would say, how sad. Here it is, Ahab, the king of Israel, the worst and the most abominable of judgment is coming. But there's a rather shocking development at the end of this chapter. It says in verse 27, when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted, and lay in sackcloth, and went about dejectedly. What a surprising development. In fact, 
There is evidence here that Ahab may very well have repented of his sins. He at least was sorry for the consequences. That would be worldly grief. But it's very possible here that this is godly grief that leads to repentance. And God knows the difference. In this case, this repentance looked like this. He had a posture of repentance. That was the sackcloth and the torn clothes and the fasting and all those things. These were the things that someone who was truly turning from their sins before God would do. This was a posture of repentance. But he also evidently had an attitude of repentance. When it says he went about dejectedly, the idea here is he went about sad for what had taken place. Hearing the words that he was a sinner. What a surprising development. Ahab apparently repenting. In fact, apparently this is a real development. Because the word of the Lord again comes to Elijah saying this. Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon this house. This real development. The Lord brings Elijah's attention to it and brings mercy because of it. It's a merciful development. Here's God. He's gone to Ahab of all people. The worst sinner, the, the worst king, uh, the guy who, who looks like he's irredeemable. And he sends Elijah to this guy and tells him, tell the king you are sitting in this way. I know everything you've done and I'm going to wreck your life and everything about it. And Ahab, instead of thumbing his nose against God, my family realized I haven't said that term for a long time. I used to say it quite a bit, evidently. Instead of doing that, he repents in sackcloth and in a humble attitude. And this merciful development brings delayed judgment or delayed consequences. God says, look at this. Why does he want Elijah to see it? He doesn't want Elijah to see it because it's completely out of character for Ahab. It really was. He wanted Elijah to see it because God says it, it's true. He's truly humbled himself. In other words, he's showing Elijah the miracle of a transformation in the humility of Ahab. Now we understand in Ahab's sanctification, we don't really get it in the next two chapters. It doesn't appear that he grows in the ways we would like him to grow as a king. And it's possible that he truly was a believer by this point, but still didn't know how to handle things. I don't know how it all works out. Will we see Ahab in heaven? I tend to think because of verse 29, we will, but I don't know. But I think this, God loves repentance. It's his joy. In fact, he says that angels will rejoice over one sinner who repents. And the conversion of so many people in Scripture, I think of even perhaps the greatest missionary the world has ever known, the Apostle Paul. You know his background. He persecuted the church. He was the one with great zeal to go off not only into the streets of Jerusalem, but to go all the way to Damascus and Syria to persecute the church and to tell them that Jesus was not the Savior and the Messiah. And yet on that road to Damascus, God intervened in his life and the people of God who had worshipped Christ 
were asking themselves, why Paul? Is it, could it possibly be true that Paul has been saved? Here is the guy that we at least expect to be saved by the gospel. And yet, what is God doing? He's reminding them of the marvel and the wonder that even the worst sinners can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You see, God had already demonstrated to Ahab and all Israel that he was God. Now he was showing the world the power of the Spirit among the most wicked of human hearts. I'm sure you have repeatedly heard the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin. The problem is this. We must take sin very seriously. You've been told this is the way that the Lord does it. But the first problem is that sin and the sinner cannot be separated unless there is repentance. Unless there is repentance, both the sin and the sinner will face judgment. The second problem is this. We misconstrue love sometimes. Did God love Ahab? How did he love Ahab? It is in love that God exposed the sin to bring someone to repentance. In fact, in the church, we are called sometimes to come and to our members, to our sheep, and reveal to them some of the things that are going on in their lives so that they might come to repentance and experience the wonder of God's grace as they're restored to him. Notice that God never stops working with Ahab. I have to say, Ahab and his uh, relative Manasseh, who was king of Judah later on, these two individuals, the worst kings that these two nations had ever had, and both of these kings, both Ahab in 1 Kings and Manasseh in 2 Chronicles, both of them have repentance narratives, both of them, to tell us that God's grace is greater than our sin. You see, it's when God gives someone over to his sin that it's the worst. We see when someone refuses to repent, there is no hope. But by God's grace, even the worst of sinners, and here is where we are as we approach the book of 2 Kings. Here we are in a situation where king after king, situation after situation is exposed as perhaps worse than the rest. Every once in a while a good king pops up like Josiah or like Hezekiah. And every once in a while you see God's grace working in the lives of the people. But by and large, <coughs> excuse me, throughout this narrative of the kings, they're wicked people. The people are wicked. They're seeking to dishonor God and lead the people astray. But behind the scenes, God is working. And even the worst of sinners, he may call to repentance and faith. What a glorious God. To even call the worst of sinners. When God says there's no one like him, God is saying to Elijah by the end of this chapter, there's also no one like me. Gracious God who loves his people. Let's bow and pray. Father, let us be encouraged that even the worst of sinners, you can bring repentance. Let us be encouraged that even if we find ourselves in the midst of sin and temptation, yet you can rescue us. Let us be encouraged, Lord, that your grace is indeed greater than our sin. We pray these things in Jesus' name.